Hi, this is Ed Vasey and this is The Vasey View where I talk to tech entrepreneurs and tech thinkers about um, tech. My first interview is Martha Lane Fox, it's Baroness Martha Lane Fox, no less, the queen of UK tech and the co-founder of lastminute.com. Five years ago, Martha set up the charity Dot Everyone to campaign for responsible technology. She decided to merge it with the Open Data Institute and the Ada Lovelace Institute. I'll discuss with her the reasons for merging her charity, what she's achieved in the last five years, and also, given that she's a board member of Twitter, we might discuss one or two other things as well. And finally, I'll be talking to the former bass guitarist of the Sundays, none other than Paul Brindley, who, having given up his career in pop music, set up a consultancy, Music Ally, to help people break into the record industry. He's recently done a deal with the BPI, the UK record industry trade body, to put online some training videos to help people get into the music industry. But more interestingly, we'll talk about the music tech scene. Who are the companies uh, that are going to perhaps uh, marginally disrupt the music industry in the coming years? So I'm joined now by Martha Lane Fox. So really, I wanted to start, Martha, by asking you to go back five years and just talk about why you set up Dot Everyone and what you felt the need was then, way back in 2015, practically the prehistoric age. Practically, um, when we could all hug with gay abandon, I am... Um was asked to give the Dimbleby lecture on BBC One for anyone unfamiliar with this. It is 45 minutes of free television for the BBC, 45 minutes of sheer terror for someone like me who has to write a speech about something they wanted to um, espouse to the nation. And I talked and reflected on what I'd learnt in the technology sector in nearly 20 years of working. And uh, not because I'm clever, but because it was blooming obvious in 2015, it felt as though the sheen was coming off tech and that we needed to think about reinventing our institutions, our um, public sector, not just um, government services, but just helping officials, legislators, you know, people running clinical commissioning groups through to people running education system, help them understand the internet more. And crucially, remember that the everyone is very, very important in all of, in all of this, that it felt as though there were lots of, of academics talking about tech, there are lots of companies sponsoring their own think tanks to tell you how brilliant their own company was but sometimes the everyone was getting lost so um i said that we need to think about all these issues and then having given the lecture i felt i should probably start the organ one of the organizations i was talking about that's where everyone was born and we tried to right from the beginning put the focus of what we were doing on the furthest first users so in tech, as people may know, there's kind of concept of a super user, um, you know, and uh, our super users were the people who, for whom tech was actually a bit more challenging and difficult, and it wasn't the natural um, place you'd start when designing services for them. And what I wanted to show was by using tech intelligently for the most vulnerable people, you would inherently design better services for everybody with more of the consequences thought about, and you could show what good looked like. It feels like a sort of Sisyphean task. I mean, we've now got NHSX set up. And, yes. uh, you know, one's common experience, day-to-day -day experience of GP services and so on, it's still 
very much stuck in the Stone Age. And you just wonder how on earth you can transform public services digitally. You can see how you know, our individual lives, our lives are transformed by commercial companies like Amazon uh, or indeed Netflix uh, in terms of how we've lived our life in lockdown. But it just seems almost insurmountable to achieve that kind of transformation in the public sector. I disagree. I think that um, <laughs> I, I think that there is no more urgent task. You know, I was much struck actually. It was a maybe there. It was a Wired conference about two years ago, and um, Tony Blair was speaking. He was my warm-up act. I'm joking. He was speaking yes, before me, yeah, and he um, and he said that I was surprised, and it was partly playing to the crowd. But I think there was there was truth in it. He said if he was prime minister now, then digitizing the country effectively would be his number one priority. And then he went on to talk a bit about kind of what that meant. And he was talking about exactly that Sisyphean task that, you know, this isn't, this is my language, not his, but this isn't binary. You know, we don't have a choice. We are moving through time with technology underpinning everything. And we can either choose to ignore huge sections of our society, like care homes or the health service, or we can choose to try and do it and do it better. And actually, government, I think, has got enormous levers it can pull. And it doesn't always get it right, but I don't believe the task cannot be broken down to manageable chunks. And there are some kind of things that I think we lose sight of sometimes that make this much easier. I did some work for Jeremy Hunt when he was health secretary. He wanted me to look at innovation and digital in health. And I actually did something which I don't think made him very pleased because I came back and I said, well, that's fine. But I think the biggest gains are just having interoperable standards, i.e. systems that can talk to each other and making that an absolute benchmark that is that judges services. And it doesn't matter if you have hundreds and hundreds of services, but they must be able to talk to each other, share data, be built upon and so on and so on. So Yes, these are big systems, but, you know, we haven't got the biggest systems in the world. There are bigger systems and we can definitely improve from where we are now. And I hope that we keep focused on the right things, which are um, some I do feel sometimes we lose in the kind of incredible sort of charisma and excitement of just pure innovation and the latest top thing, which is important. But it's the building blocks which will stand us in, in the next in improving the next decade. It should be the government's absolute number one priority when you think yes. that its function is to serve the citizen but it can also deliver services much more efficiently but I also want to talk to you about the private tech sector because you're on the board of Twitter and clearly yes anyone other... heard of Twitter I don't think people will know what Twitter is do you think we should explain yeah, Twitter is a small social media company based in California <laughs> little app um, and a lot of dot everyone's agenda was responsible tech and yep. your response to the online harms white paper is about uh, citizens being able to have sufficient redress. Yes. Uh, and clearly, Twitter is front and center of that debate, has always been front and center of that debate. I remember, obviously, as an MP, uh, uh, to be frank with you, being particularly annoyed when female MPs would say to me when I was a tech minister, Look, I've just been had the most vile abuse on Twitter and I just cannot get any response. And I thought, well, I know this, uh, this probably sounds amazingly pompous, but if a woman MP can't get a response from Twitter, how can anyone ordinary do it? And of course, we're talking at the moment when Twitter has suddenly become everyone's hero, depending on your perspective, I guess, but has certainly uh, stepped up to the plate, crossed the line, however you want to put it. I'm trying to stay studiously politically neutral by annotating uh, President Trump's tweets. So give me a small insight into your life as a board member of Twitter. You Which is obviously something they love and encourage. They say, please go out and talk <laughs> yeah. endlessly and with very little discretion about your time on the board. I mean, you know, the, th the first thing to say is that it's 
it feels, I mean, and understandably in many ways, I think if you're a member of the public or a user of these services, oh, they're all kind of the same. Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, dump them all together. And I think that's fine. And I'm not trying to um, make excuses for, for things that can improve in Twitter, but Twitter is not Facebook and Twitter is not YouTube and Twitter is not Google. So it is important to be quite distinct when we're talking about what we want to change in the companies and how we're going to yes. do it. Because they are different ecosystems. You know, Twitter is a company of 4,000 people. It makes money, sure, but it's not Facebook with hundreds of thousands of people and billions in the bank. And it's certainly not Amazon with a whole different business model again. So it is important to be distinct when we are talking about how we want things to change. So that's the first thing I would say. And I think the second thing is that Twitter is on a journey like, like all of us. And I could any I could be on the board if I didn't feel like it was going you know, forwards or sideways, not backwards. Um, and yeah. these are incredibly complicated and difficult issues, right? There's no doubt that when I joined the board, I certainly, and I tried to bring that to board meetings, but it wasn't news and it's something they were wrestling with every day. The abuse on Twitter was terrible and the tools to make it better were terrible too. And the onus was on the victim far too much. Jack has said this repeatedly and the team has said it. You know, the surprising thing I think about Twitter is the, the technology is not fabulous. It's built upon layers upon layers of players. And the thing about the NHS and complexity, even though it's a yeah. startup and it comes from Silicon Valley, it has what they call a lot of tech debt. It's actually quite difficult to get um, products out into the world. And, and, and the company's talked about it's this. It's been around a long time. I mean, I've been on it for 10 years. It's amazing. Yes, me, me too. So um, the, the, it's a different company to other, other companies brings its own challenges. It has complicated technology and it needs to improve that to be able to roll up and speed up in its iterations. But I believe that the values that the senior team are now putting into the technology are the are better. Um, certainly recognize the abuse and the challenges 100% and it's not always perfect, but I think that the tools are moving in the direction that they need to. Um, and they are now really trying to think very carefully and you know not with um, without you know, extreme navigating extreme complexity about how yeah. they then put it you know, you know how they then look <laughs> at free speech because very different in the US to what it feels like in Saudi Arabia and very different again in Japan. You know, Twitter is bigger than Google in Japan and people have a very different relation to it. And their identities on Twitter are very different because of how Japanese people think about identities and the character count Twitter in Japan it actually allows them to have pretty long conversations. So they're trying to navigate all those things. And that is that is very interesting. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating. And you know what's happening with Trump is you know the, the next uh, incredible um, mountain that they will climb. But do I think that it's right that Twitter tries to put a marker in the sand around particular bits of information at a hundred percent? And I respect them for doing so because they're going to get a lot of flack. Martha, thanks so much. Um, Dot everyone has achieved great things. Thank you. I'm. Um, he says patronizingly, you've but done an amazing thing no, with dot you. everyone. But also it's good to stop. Uh, when we were talking about this before, yes. it's sometimes good to stop. And the last thing I wanted it to become was a vanity project. I mean, that does a disservice to the people that were working there that did all the hard work. But uh, we need to constantly check whether we were having the maximum impact that we could. And so it's right now that organizations that can scale it and scale the work can do that. Martha, thanks so much. Take care. All right. And you. Bye. So my next guest is Paul Brindley, who obviously needs no introduction. He's the former guitarist for the band The Sundays. Bass. Bass guitarist Bass for the band The Sundays. Yeah. 
he finds it hard to keep silent while I'm doing my introduction. And obviously there's amazing Sorry. songs like Here's Where the Story Ends, Wild Horses, and so on, can all be listened to on Apple Music, so he'll get some royalties. In fact, Paul's come on to talk about music tech, so that, despite being a facetious introduction, is also quite relevant. And music tech is a huge and growing industry. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Sorry for my Thank you. facetious introduction. <laughs> Tell us a bit about the... <laughs> BPI deal and about musically and what you do. Sure. Um, yeah, and th thanks for inviting me on. So, uh, yeah, Music Ally started around twenty years ago, and we've we've published information on uh, on the music business. It's always been a subscription publication for the for the industry, but we've uh, started to do a lot more over the over the years in terms of research services, consultancy, a lot around digital marketing. Um, and we uh, we did this program with um, with the BPI because we've worked quite a lot with um, with startups uh, over the years because that's always been a big uh, area of interest for us and obviously you know so much innovation around the music industry over the last twenty years has been led by uh, by startups coming in and offering new possibilities in terms of uh, all sorts of aspects of the business. Um, but the BPI wanted us to help them uh, really give startups a bit of information in advance, you know, some useful tips. So we went out and we thought, well, you know, who do we need to be speaking to? So we've got people speaking from all of the main labels. We've got some lawyers. We've got uh, the collecting societies, PPL and PRS, a couple of advisors, a couple of accelerators in and incubators, our editor um, giving some advice on dealing with PR and, and really crucially some startups themselves. And we've created a whole series of, of videos that are available online from the BPI website, which really just try and give would-be uh, music-related startups some of those best tips, you know, before they kind of um, approach the industry to make sure that they're properly prepared. Because the, I guess that, you know, Firstly, it is worth acknowledging in the past, this industry has not been the friendliest to deal with. Um, you know, they, they could have been better in terms of embracing innovation. I think the attitudes are a lot, a lot more positive now. But, but you know, so many startups do run up against the same kind of, of problems. And so it's just as well to, to think about some of those in advance. It's interesting, isn't it, that... Um... Again, sort of going back to when I started working tangentially, as it were, with the music industry, at the time, the feeling was the record labels are done for. This is all over. Yeah. Now, obviously, with Universal Music riding sky high in terms of its valuation, uh, the record labels have maintained their dominance. I don't really have a problem with that because I think record labels do add a lot of value, marketing, marketing. Uh, advice and management, basically, uh, even even in the age where the CD is dead and everybody is streaming music. I just wonder what your thoughts are on the kind of, it's a phrase, the democratization of music. But if you are just starting out, particularly as an artist, uh, you know, from afar as a, as a voyeur, if you like, one sees people who are able to market themselves on YouTube, uh, use fan sites, and draw in crowds of supporters. You have websites like Patreon, which in theory allow people to monetize 
their content. How has it changing? How has it changed over the last couple of years? Or few? Well, I mean, you know, obviously, yeah, the process has been been a little longer than that, but it is it is changing, and the democratization of music is a very current trend right now. When you think of technology. There are so many um, AI, artificial intelligence companies that are focused on this area. Um, so really, you know, the whole idea, it started off, I suppose, with kind of synthesizers and, you know, being able to program music. And now it's just getting, it's getting easier and easier. And some of them are a little bit more for fun. Some of them tend to be a little bit more serious. But that what that means together with the fact of the the lowered barriers in terms of being able to access the market i mean it, it's so easy for anyone to get their music onto a service like spotify means that there's way more music than there's ever been in the past however you know that means there's a lot of noise that you need to compete with and there's a huge amount of music that just never gets listened to so uh the role of the labels particularly when you're looking at the bigger labels when it comes to you know the the majors and the global superstars they're they're always going to be important still because they've got whole networks of, of contacts and uh infrastructure that is kind of hard for any diy artist to be able to to emulate but what you can do is you can get yourself a sort of certain way up up the ladder these days and i think a lot of labels um, nowadays are looking more to sign the artists that they can see have already done something, have established a little bit of an audience, however, you know, however small that 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 may be that may be online. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that somehow the role of the intermediaries gets complete. As a, the, the word was disintermediation, of course, years ago, that's what everyone was was talking about. That hasn't really happened. But I mean, Spotify was the great disruptor, as it were, in the sense that uh, it provided, you know, a whole new way to listen to music. I guess uh, at the other end, a sort of micro end, I think about companies like So Far Sounds, which in theory allow people to do mm. gigs in your living room. And then in between, as I say, there's companies like Patreon, which allow the fans to have a sort of direct relationship uh, with the artists, but is there going to be more disruption in the music industry, or do you think, as it were, the reset has happened and we're going to see just changes around the edges? I mean, you mentioned, for example, AI, and one hears, for example, lots of talk of uh, jingles and tunes being created on computers, almost the death of yeah. the artist. But again, I take that with a pinch of salt. We've talked about the death of the actor in the yeah. past. I'm not sure that's going to happen. It's not going to go away and there will be new types of disruption. I don't think we're going to see quite something of the scale of the likes. I mean, Spotify, when it launched, I mean, it was adopting a business model that had already been been tried out. It just did it rather better than some pre-existing services. And, and then now and legally. you've got and and legally, um, and now you've got a market that yeah is you know an international market that's dominated by some of those key streaming players Spotify, um, Apple, Amazon, um, Google, and YouTube. But um, but you know there's there's lots of scope for for plenty of other areas. And if you look at AI alone, um, I would like you know to to pick on one company, a company called Popgun, based in um, Australia, who make AI for music creation right through from a sophisticated 
Ableton plugin, which is you know much more for music professionals, to uh, a game on on Roblox, which is a, a game the kids are, are very much into these days, called Splash Music, um, which is yeah much more aimed at the kind of mass mass market, enabling uh, you know people at either end of the scale to be able to create music, which is you know of a certain kind of quality. Now, when it gets to serious serious musicians you kind of need to work with the ai you know you, you're not really going to get much pure pure quality ai music that has no human intervention whatsoever but that's why i think it, it's fair to look up upon ai as being a kind of a progression from from a tool like the synthesizer you know um yeah everyone that's said interesting. about the synth synthesizer it was gonna it was gonna make and the drum machine was going to make drummers redundant and you know we wouldn't need musicians anymore that's obviously not the case but people learn to to use these tools to to their benefit and um yeah it's just uh it, it can save time it can be more efficient and it can just inspire in a way that you know any new kind of instrument can make people think about music uh, creating music in different ways but ai is so much more than that as well it's it's a way of categorizing music for music services there's a great tool called trash which uh, helps you create music videos using ai there's a company called super hi-fi that uses ai for podcasts and uh really concentrates on um on the space between the songs to make make the experience more uh, more radio like that sounds unbelievably niche who came up with the idea of <laughs> ai for the space between the songs on a podcast <laughs> it's <is> amazing <laughs> well no but the point the point sort of being more one of kind of how do you when everyone has the same kind of experience on a streaming service you know what can you do to enhance the uh, the listener experience it's not just podcasts but um uh, that's that's a big that's a big part of it streams and podcasts and uh no it is it is, it is actually quite 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 an interesting tool quite successful and developed by some quite serious people behind it paul you've been absolutely brilliant i kept referring to your company as musically not music partly <laughs> because i was obsessed about whether or not you sued musically the company eventually bought by tiktok when they emerged but we won't divert ourselves on that i just want to say a huge thank you i think the thank initiative with the bpi is fantastic and you've given Great. a brilliant overview, I think, of some of the interesting areas of music tech. And I do think, uh, again, although I sounded facetious, uh, niche companies are the ones that do very successfully. If you can solve a particular problem, yeah. but it's a problem that a lot of people have in a particular industry, you can do very well. Yeah, that's right. Thanks so much, yep. Paul. I agree. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.